Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I just spoke with Catherine Jamy, who joined me via Skype from Paris, about her new book, The Emperor's New Mathematics, Western Learning and Imperial Authority During the Kangxi Reign, 1662-1722, to and that was just published um, very recently in 2012 with the Oxford University Press. Now, this is a book that is extraordinarily rich. It's full of really detailed analyses um, of a very exceptionally important period in the history of science and in the history of China. This is science at the Kangxi court, um, and mathematics in particular. It's a book that is not only, I mean, so rich that we probably only got to about half of it um, in the course of our conversation, but it's also very rich in terms of the methodological contributions that it's making to a broader dialogue about the history of science in and with global history. Um, it's uh, Jemmy and her analysis asks us to really rethink or in, in some ways get rid of our ideas of the dichotomies between China and Europe in the history of science. She asks us to rethink um, the importance of circulation in producing knowledge, not just in um, sort of moving already existing knowledge around. It's a very interesting book. It's a very important book, um, certainly for anybody interested in the history of science um, and its relationship to Chinese history. And it's also a very enjoyable book to read. We had a great time talking, or certainly I did, um, and I hope that you enjoy. Hello, Katrine. Hello, Carla. We're here today to talk with Katrine Jamy about her book, The Emperor's New Mathematics, Western Learning and Imperial Authority During the Kangxi Reign, 1662 to 1722. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology and Society, Katrine, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course. Could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to the history of science in China and to the history of mathematics in particular? Um, well, it, it, I'm afraid this is not really a, an intellectual trajectory. It just happened that as a child, I had the opportunity to study Chinese at school from the age of 11. Uh, this was in the days where, um, when because of the Cultural Revolution, you could never meet a a real native speaker of Chinese. It took me six years of study before I could actually talk to someone in uh, someone whose native language was Chinese. And then um, I, I uh, started off to be a mathematician. I became curious of, um, uh, you know, how things had been invented rather than just learning so-and-so's theorem ready-made. And um, uh, eventually I started... Uh, putting my two, I would say, subjects of curiosity together. Uh, and also I felt interested in, in knowing how, you know, things traveled between Europe and China. So this is really how I, I, I came to this field, um, not really very much knowing about what history of science was, because in those days in France, this was the 1980s, it wasn't very easy for someone like me with a degree in pure mathematics to, um, uh, you know, there was no, there was no, no department. And uh, typically in France, you would become a historian of science more as a philosopher. Um, so, um, but uh, somehow I, uh, I made all my interests linked together, and um, that's how I started. That's great. Thank you. Now, this is this book is coming out um, at a point where you've already got a very long and very um, accomplished career of publishing in the history of Chinese science and the history of Chinese mathematics. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of this book project in particular and sort of where this fits within the larger scope of your work? Mm-hmm. 
Um, yes, yeah, so I, I started by working on the reception of uh, what is called Western learning in China by exploring the work of an 18th century mathematician and astronomer. And, um, and then as historians usually do, I sort of went sort of, uh, you know, backward and this mathematician's training really seemed to be very closely related with the, uh, uh, the imperial compendium of mathematics, which the, the present book is, is uh, devoted to. Um, and as I also started to work more, um, you know, um, I started focusing on, on the Jesuits in early Qing China. Um, I kept running into the Kangxi Emperor and, you know, although originally I was more interested in uh, looking at what less um, important or famous people had done, I had to admit in the end that uh, I, I couldn't really get away from him. I couldn't really, uh, you know, I, I really had to um, focus on, on uh, to, to understand how important and how significant he was. Um, then I should mention I had a chance to... Uh, work in China in collaboration with Han Xi from the Institute uh, for the History of Natural Science. And uh, we uh, uh, uncovered some manuscript together. And uh, after we'd, we'd sort of um, uh, done a bit of work, he, he was ahead of me in that, but then we joined forces. And um, when we had published together, I, I realized that uh, there was a lot more to say, that um, one had to really uh, reconstruct the, the story of these manuscripts, but not so much of the manuscript, but I was more interested in the actors and uh, how it is that um, something that is labeled Western can be turned into something that is called imperial and therefore become in principle, a must for uh, orthodox uh, scholars to um, uh, be involved in. So that, that's really how uh, uh, things started. It, I think before the, between the time when I realized, well, I must have a book to write here, um, and the time when the book was published, it took 10 years. Um, there is also another aspect to um, uh, the, the, the genesis of the book, it was the, the realization that um, uh, there was, um, I would say, there was a need to write uh, the history of um, Western learning in China as regards mathematics by um, uh, focusing on something that had been completely neglected because uh, usually... Uh, Western mathematics in China. It was, you know, Euclid in China. That is actually the title of a very good book uh, published in 1998 by Peter Engelfried. So Euclid is is wonderful. It's the Greek classic. It wasn't there before, and suddenly it's translated. And so it's it's a kind of um, um, I would say um, a cliche of you know what what is. Uh, uh, what is strikingly new, what is um, what cannot be disputed is, is, is relevant that the uh, Jesuits brought to China. And it seemed to me that uh, it was interesting to look at another field which was uh, perceived as, as uh, um, complementary to that at the time, which was calculation. And there, when one looks at the picture, it's more, much more complex because uh, it's much more a matter of negotiating uh, between uh, traditions that are already there in China and some aspects of what the Jesuits bring in. And um, uh, the, the uh, various material from the uh, late Ming uh, to early Qing showed that one could also do this by um, following very much the way one does uh, when analyzing a tradition, uh, the various ways in which a particular uh, mathematical problem was dealt with in, in uh, a succession of, of mathematical texts between late 16th and uh, early 18th century. So that was really the two, the two aspects. That is, you know, a, um, I would say a story um, very much about the actors and also um, looking, um, following mainly one one particular thread as to uh, the mathematics I discuss in the book, because, of course, I do not cover uh, the whole field of mathematics. 
So the book itself looks closely at science in the imperial context of the reign of the emperor who you just mentioned, the Kangxi Emperor, who for listeners who might be unfamiliar with um, this period of Chinese history, reigned um, from 1662 to 1722. Now it focuses on the history of mathematics in this context, as you mentioned, but it situates the story of mathematics and Kangxi within a larger framework, extending from the late Ming through the years after Kangxi's reign, and treating actually much more than mathematics in the course of the analysis, I think very helpfully. Now, let's um, start off by speaking a little bit to something that I think you, you talked a little bit about when situating the genesis of this particular project within its larger context. The book is very careful to place this story of Kangxi and of mathematics within a larger framework of the circulation of science in a global context. And what you just mentioned um, in terms of uh, a kind of methodology of following a problem, a mathematical problem as an object as it circulates both from place to place and, and across text is actually very interesting. How does the account of the circulation of science that you want to present in this book and that you did present in this book differ methodologically from what you might characterize as or what we might think of as a conventional story about China and the history of science? So what, what methodological contributions to the story of the circulation of science as it involves China were you hoping to accomplish with the book? Um, I think the first uh, the first assumption I wanted to challenge uh, was that it, it has any meaning to talk about China and Europe or China and the West as two entities. Um, I have become convinced while working on that book that um, circulation, uh, there is no, I mean, circulation, I would say, within a society, that, for example, of the early Qing uh can be treated basically uh, can be approached in a way similar to circulations not only within Europe but also between Europe and China. That that in fact one tended uh, one has tended very much to essentialize to to see two uh, entities uh, whether there would be uh, encountering confronting. I mean you find lots of nice verbs to describe what happens there, but that in fact if you um, if you start looking at things closely, um, the the, um, the the, the um, uh, modalities of, of uh, you know how how um, I would say um, uh, and, well an, uh, either you know a whole body of knowledge or some elements of it can uh, can circulate. Um, the, the analysis needs to look at. Um, I would say at on, if we say on each side, if we, 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 we count the sides up as the also the, the uh, languages the sources are written in, uh, for any, for example, for any given Jesuit who worked in China, you need to look at his personal trajectory, what colleges he studied, uh, where, where he studied, what books he read, and things like that, what languages he, he functioned in. And uh, also on the other side, um, one finds, for example, that in, in several cases, the Imperial Palace was a dead end, that uh, knowledge that had uh, so been circulated and then translated up to there all the way from Europe, um, well, well, stayed within, um, you know, literally um, or metaphorically speaking, the walls of the um, Forbidden City. And that's the case, for example, of the... Uh, uh, this famous uh, treatise on um, uh, anatomy. So um, one needed to understand, I think, very much within the early Qing society, uh, the balance of power between at, at, at different times between the emperor, uh, Chinese uh, official, uh, Chinese officials. Uh, also uh, Manchu officials and uh, members of the imperial household. So, so for me, that they, one of the, the the main points about circulation is, is that you have to, to 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 break any idea of dichotomy. It is always a, a, a story with with several actors and the oppositions, and the alliances are not always uh, according to whether one uh, is supposed to be Chinese or Western. Uh, because, of course, one of the questions between, be, behind this is, uh, was the emperor of China Chinese at the time? And as, um, you know, all the students of Qing China know, um, 
he was not and he did not regard himself as uh, Chinese but as Manchu and uh, that I think has a um, uh, a lot of bearing on, on the fate of uh, Western learning in China. So um, for me that is the um, uh, what, for me what, that was one of the main points that I found it uh, important to make in that book. Uh, another point um, uh, regarding methodology is that um, um, I am no longer sure that it makes much sense to distinguish between circulation and production of knowledge. Um, that if, as you know, knowledge is constructed, it, it rarely uh, can be can remain located within the main, uh, the, the same geographical or social uh, um, uh, location, and that conversely, by by moving from uh, one um, place or one group to another, it needs to be rewritten, um, interpreted in different ways, so that, um, in a sense, uh, one, I think, uh, sh- should not uh, uh, consider the study of circulation as, as different from that of uh, construction and uh, or knowledge production. Uh, it may be. Um, less obvious in mathematics than it is, for example, in another field that was very important at the time at both ends of the Eurasian continent, that is cartography, um, which was also a major concern uh, both of some of the Jesuits who were in China and of the emperor of China. So um, for me, uh, probably um, uh, these are the two uh, main points that uh, I wanted to um, make and to um, illustrate in my book. Great. And I think the book does both of those things exceptionally well. And another thing that um, you mentioned, reminding us that Kangxi Emperor was Manchu, not Chinese, is just... That's part of, I think, a larger situation of the story that you give us within uh, something that you call a new Qing history, right? Which is also exceptionally important. And I think, um, I hope that we see many, many more uh, works such as this along those lines. It's, it's very, very useful in putting this story about the history of science as you do within a larger historical context. Now, the book is is broken up into several parts, and part one of the book um, gives us a kind of necessary historical background to understand how to get to uh, the point of Kangxi and where we are once we get there. So it sort of sets up the story of um, that we'll look at later on in the Qing. The first chapter looks at the beginnings of Western learning in China in the, at the end of the Ming Dynasty. And this is important um, for listeners who, do, who aren't familiar with this context so much because one of the things that happens in the course of this book in the history of mathematics in China is that we have a transformation from one dynasty to another. So we start in the late Ming. Now this chapter looks at the Jesuits' teaching of mathematics in China during that period and the translations that they helped produce, including um, this rendering into China Chinese of the first six books of Euclid's Elements, and this is probably what um, we were talking about earlier before. Now, because um, this chapter raises a theme that's going to continue to be very important later on in this book, and certainly when we get to Kangxi, and that's actually quite interesting um, in the larger context of the history of science, and that is the pedagogy of science. So, the, so I want to um, ask you, if you could, to talk a little bit about this in this context. The pedagogy of mathematics becomes a very important theme throughout this book, albeit in different contexts. Can you talk a little bit about the major factors that were influencing the way Jesuits in this period, in the late Ming, including Matteo Ricci, were teaching mathematics in China? So how, what was the pedagogy of mathematics um, by Jesuits um, in China uh, at this period in the late Ming? And so that we can sort of have a context to compare what's going to happen um, in the teaching of mathematics mathematics in China later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think the um, probably the the, the the point that in the end seemed the most significant to me was that um, the Jesuits um, needed to find a niche amongst uh, Chinese literati. You know, they um, they decided to identify themselves to that particular social group rather than to uh, Buddhist monks, as they had uh, uh, begun by doing. And um, uh, so 
uh, 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 in order to do that, um, I think they they reinterpreted a role they were familiar with in in Europe, which was that of teachers um, at the time. So we are talking about the very end of the 16th century and the. Uh, uh, first decade of the 17th century, the Society of Jesus um, had built up the most important educational network in Europe. Um, and um, what we find the Jesuits doing is, um, well, usually one says translating, publishing, but in fact, teaching some of the subjects that are taught in colleges in, in Europe uh, to a number of uh, literati, uh, some of which uh, are converts at the time when they are taught or later become converts, but others are simply uh, interested or curious and, and do not actually become Christian. But it's um, uh, very clear from, uh, if we take the, the uh the first and probably most famous uh, Jesuit missionary in China, Matteo Ricci. Uh, Matteo Ricci um, arrived in, in China in uh, 1582, and uh, he was a student of uh, Christoph Clavius, uh, most famous as the um, author of the uh, Gregorian calendar. And uh, Matteo Ricci uh, simply um, started to relate to some literati by by transmitting to them what he had learned uh, from his master at the Roman College, uh, having found that there was more interest in subjects like mathematics, geography, um, or some technical subjects than there was in um, um, Aristotelian philosophy uh, or... or um, even in, in um, uh, subjects like logic or, or um, matters more directly uh, related to um, the Catholic religion. So um, the, 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 the Jesuit as a teacher is the way um, the Jesuit becomes part of the uh, literati class. And um, so if, if we look at um, more, more closely of, you know, how things were done, uh, we, it does not seem that there was any structure similar to what there could be in Europe, that is a classroom. Um, and uh, we, we have no evidence of, of more than one person being taught at the same time, which of course, I mean, maybe it happened. But uh, uh, for example, if we look at uh, the translation of Euclid's elements of the first six books into Chinese, Ritchie describes it as the outcome of his teaching of mathematics to Xuanzi. So uh, in a way that's, you know, very much modeled on, on what happened in Europe. Um, there were no textbooks available to everyone in, in Jesuit colleges. Books were more for the, the, the master and the students would uh, take notes and uh, the notes would be, uh, you know, the the, uh, the lecture that the master had dictated. So Ritchie effectively dictated uh, his his course on Euclidean geometry, uh, which was was really um, the most significant parts of uh, Clavius's Latin of um, Latin version of Euclid, and uh, in in the. Uh, uh, successful um, Chinese version, we have, uh, in a sense, a token of uh, Richie's success as a teacher and Xu Guangqi's uh, achievement as a student. Um, and for all we know, the uh, translations into Chinese that happened in the late Ming uh, in mathematics, but also in some other technical subjects, uh, were done in, in the same way. And the, uh, the Chinese phrase uh, used on the uh, uh, first page of uh, many of these books uh, it says that it was transmitted orally and um, um, uh, collected and, and received in writing. Uh, so this was the, the, the in fact the, the the what we call a collaboration for translation was a pedagogical uh, relationship. Now, the um, Jesuits, uh, other Jesuits, worked on astronomical reform from 1629 until the fall of the Ming in 1644, and two Jesuits appointed to work on the reform 
after a proposal by Xu Guangqi were Johann Schreck and Johann Adam Schall von Bell. And Schall von Bell, this, um, he becomes an important figure later on in the next chapter. Now, he was the only Jesuit in Beijing when it fell to Li Zicheng, and this heralds the changing over of the dynasty. And this brings us into the next chapter. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, so the next chapter situates us in the Qing. Can you talk a bit about how this dynastic change impacted Jesuit opportunities in Beijing? Um, so what the, the, the story one has of the transition in Beijing, um, so in, in uh, 1644 was that when the, the Manchus took Beijing, which was previously occupied by Li Zicheng, so the previous dynastic order had already uh, um, uh, collapsed, um, the, um, there were an, um, a number of uh, eminent residents of Beijing who offered their services to uh, uh, the Manchus, who were perceived as re-establishing uh, order after the uh, rather bloody um, um, uh, episode of Li Zicheng. And um, the, the story is that Adam Shalvin offered them the um, the calendars that he had be, had prepared for the Ming. And so there was an, a direct offer of uh, service to the new dynasty, uh, which was accepted, and in exchange for which uh, Adam Shal then, uh, well, became a, effectively became a, a civil servant. And so the, the, the change is that rather than being under the patronage of uh, uh, Chinese uh, literati officials, uh, the Jesuits, or at least one of them, because I don't think there was ever more than one uh, Jesuit official astronomer uh, at, at, at a time. Uh, so Adam Schall himself becomes um, uh, a civil servant uh, in a position that we should say is not a very um, a, a prominent one. Um, astronomers did not go through the um, path of uh, uh, imperial examinations, and so they were not, uh, in principle, politically very um, uh, powerful. Uh, however, Charles was, I would say, Amongst the um, the resources that uh, the Manchus found uh, available uh, in Beijing, and of course um, it was an important one because in the uh, Chinese imperial tradition, uh, a good calendar is a token of um, dynastic um, legitimacy. Um, in that the emperor, being the intermediary between heaven and earth, has to be the one who makes sure that uh, um, uh, human society lives uh, in harmony with the rhythms of the cosmos. So this is what um, Adam Shal was um, effectively offering to um, uh, to uh, the Manchus, um, and. and so, um, interestingly, this made him uh, very close to imperial power because he, he did not only become a civil servant, but he effectively became uh, someone who, was, who, who uh, entered the um, uh, imperial household. And from then on, we have this dual um, position of the Jesuits in the uh, Chinese civil service, but also uh, in the um, imperial household that was mainly uh, staffed by Manchus, in fact, or Bannermen, I should say, because uh, not all the um, uh, conquest elite was Manchu. A number of them were Mongol and Chinese. Great. Now, this sort of, after introducing this, the next section of the book moves us into the first two decades of Kangxi's personal rule from 1669 to 1689. 
one of the things that happened upon the assumption of power by Kangxi is that Ferdinand Ferbiest uh, becomes the official astronomer, and then ultimately he becomes Kangxi's tutor as the ruler becomes interested in Western science. And this really gets us into a very exciting part of his story. But can you talk a little bit about the context of this tutelage of Kangxi? We've already um, sort of set the stage earlier in our conversation by sort of mentioning the importance of pedagogy of mathematics earlier in the period. When Ferbiest is tutoring Kangxi um, in science and in mathematics, what does that tutoring consist of? Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, what, um, uh, uh, so all the detailed accounts we have of, of uh, Jesuit tutoring to the emperor come uh, they all come from the Jesuit side uh, because I, I, I mentioned the imperial household. They were um, servants and were not very important. So this means we have a very uh, one-sided view. But um, even then, um, uh, we know that the uh, the reason why the emperor decided to become uh, um, to, 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 to become competent in these subjects is because he found out that whereas astronomy had such an important Cosmological and political political role. Uh, there was no one uh, around him, neither the Chinese nor the Manchu officials, who really understood it. And so, very typically of the of the Kangxi Emperor in old fields, uh, he decided he was going to, uh, uh, you know, get a di- direct grasp and, and control of it. Um, and so um, uh, then uh, I think one interesting characteristic of the, uh, uh, the, the teaching of Ferbist as we know it and also of Ferbist's successors on which we know more is that there is a constant negotiation uh, between what the Jesuits find is, is important to study and what the uh, emperor uh, has the time to study, is interested in, and so on and so forth. So we know that, uh, for example, Ferbist starts with Euclid L- elements and starts translating it into Manchu. Um, but uh, clearly, uh, Kangxi prefers applied geometry and um, really uh, uh, quite interested, although he insists that he wants to understand everything. And that it seems that at least at the time when he studies, uh, you know, this was not, it, it is not just a case of, uh, I would say, uh, Ski uh, courtiers complimenting his majesty. There is some evidence that uh, the emperor didn't understand what uh, he was studying. But um, so uh, what is very um, striking is that in contrast with the uh, late Ming scholars, uh, we are not in a situation where the tutors can tell the student what he has to, to learn. There is also a, a negotiation as to what is uh, uh, what is relevant, and we find, for example, that uh, uh, at a time when uh, Ferbis supervised the making of canon uh, uh, at the time of the three feudatory rebellions, so in, in the uh, 1670s, this is uh, when uh, Kangxi suddenly uh, said, uh, well, I want to know more geometry, but he was also interested in ballistics. So um, uh, there, there are always very um, uh, narrow links between what is uh, studied and uh, the the uh, um, you know the political needs or military needs in that case of the emperor at a, at a given time i think it's a very um, uh, in, uh, interesting fact that the emperor n- never seems to uh, study because he's interested or because he wants to he always um, uh, stages what he's doing as part of his duty as an uh, as the emperor of China. Now you mentioned then that Ferbiest also worked on a canon, and this actually um, brings me to something that's very, um, I think, really wonderful about the book and very notable about the book. And this is. Um, the ways that the, throughout the book, you're constantly reminding us of the importance of the negotiation by all of these actors, not just of ideas and texts, but also of material objects. So among the many tasks that Ferbiest is charged with, he's charged with updating the instruments um, at the Astronomical Bureau. Now, this brings out, um, as I mentioned, that just the crucial 
importance to this story of materiality and material objects and instruments in the history of mathematics at the Kangxi court. This seems, uh, this is something that recurs throughout the book, and it seems um, like not just something that is for the reader um, quite a useful intervention and an important point, but it also seems very important to the work that you were trying to do in the book, if I can gather that um, from my reading. Can you talk a little bit about that, sort of about the importance of materiality and objects and instruments to the story that you're telling? If I'm reading that correctly, if I'm <laughs> if I'm at all right in, in assuming. No, no, well, you, you certainly are reading that correctly. Um, I think I am trying to, um, um, I would say, in a sense, uh, try to to go beyond the limits of what you know what one is used to when talking about the history of mathematics. Mathematics is supposed to be, you know, uh, basically texts that has in it okay methods concepts and and things that are very abstract but um, um, this is of course not always uh, histor- historically the case and um, uh, one is bound to find I think if one looked at um, uh, mathematical sciences at the same time in other parts of the world especially in a in a context where it's sponsored by uh, a sovereign uh, one would always I think find um, it related to very uh, material concerns, and uh, yes, objects uh, were important. Uh, one should also say that the word uh, mathematics at the time included much more than uh, it does today, and uh, that um, the, the, the Jesuits, for example, considered astronomy as. Um, part of mathematics and, and when, when you read the sources they do not say they're working at the astronomical bureau they say they're working at the tribunal of mathematics so there is also uh, one also has to, to uh, interpret uh, mathematics you know um, as a term that varies historically this will be um, you know evident to historians of mathematics but it, it, it does not follow that um, uh, history of mathematics always uh, uh, takes this into account and what really forced me to take this into account um, is is the um, I think the accounts we have of uh, the emperor's uh, uh, practice of mathematics uh, that um, uh, you know when uh, when he's learning about proportions and how um, the um, uh, the the, the the volume of a sphere uh, is is, is um, and its weight are proportional to one another because he's the emperor he can have uh, various spheres made of uh, metal wood etc of of uh, uh, various sizes to check experimentally that this is correct uh, where uh, you know uh, a more ordinary student would just have to believe his teacher and and uh, so in the very process of learning um, I would say objects matter very much and then um, uh, of course in instruments whether they are made for calculation or for uh, uh, surveying are are at that time, I think, an essential part of the mathematical activity uh, around the world, and and uh, in 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 uh, you know the the in my story, I think you you're quite right in pointing out that um, knowledge uh, can be sort of you know um, materialized as books, texts, but it can also be materialized as instruments, and. Uh, in uh, negotiating patronage, uh, both um, both aspects are of uh, great importance, and uh, it is also important, I think, to understand that the um, the science tutors of the emperor, the Jesuits, are also the same who were um, employed to um, for the maintenance of instruments, um, because it it. it gives um, you know a, a profile of the the, the range of expertise um, that is understood under the, uh, um, the the term of mathematics or mathematical sciences uh, 
um, at a particular time and place. And I think uh, at that time, in, in certainly in, in, in more than one place. Right. Now, another way in which um, this sort of, we can see this active negotiation in this story among different instruments of calculation, and those instruments being um, an object like an abacus, but also an instrument like a written calculation, comes in um, the character or the actor of Mei Wending, who is um, the f- main character of the next chapter. Now, Mei Wending is going to continue to be important later in the book and later in the story, and he rose to prominence in this period. Can you speak a little bit to um, to who he is? Can you introduce him a little bit for our listeners? Um, and in part, I'm bringing this up because the, the fact that we focus on him in this chapter, I think, really reminds us as readers as we work through the book that this isn't just a story about the Jesuits and Kangxi, right? That this is really a story about a lot of different kinds of actors co-creating um, this, this mathematical knowledge at the point. And so um, Mei Wending winds up being very important and very important later on increasingly in a, a transformation that we see in power um, at, uh, at court of, um, when we look at who is actually doing mathematics that is um, in this official context. So that's a long way of setting up the introductory question. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Mei Wending and, and how he's important to this story at this point? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Mei Wending is is uh, regarded nowadays as the greatest mathematician and, and astronomer of uh, this whole period. Um, if you look at him uh, when he lived, though he was um, he was first a, a literatus um, uh, from a, a small town in Anhui. Actually, uh, he, he he did not. He was not a town a town person. He lived uh, in the countryside. And um, came from a family, uh, the, the local gentry, uh, in which it seems to have been um, a kind of family hobby, family interest to um, uh, look at the stars at night. And I think this was uh, not as uncommon as what one may think. Um, there was generally a lot more uh, widespread knowledge of the um, uh, night sky in, in um, uh, probably in all parts of the world in, in those days than in ours. So um, anyhow, May Wending appears as uh, some, not a mathematician because the profession did not exist as such, but rather uh, a scholar who specializes in the mathematical sciences and he's career is one of, uh, I would say, striving for recognition, um, attempts to have his, his work published, uh, which only, I think, succeeds uh, when he's already in his 70s. And um, interestingly also, if you look at uh, May Wending's biography from the point of view of his uh, itinerary, so he starts from his hometown, he passes the uh, first uh, examination locally, and then uh, when uh, in the 1670s he goes to Nanjing to take the um, uh, provincial examination, uh, also very typically of what was the case for, for the circulation of knowledge, it is in Nanjing that he has access to uh, books he has heard of but never seen before, to books he didn't know existed. And this is done um, apparently not only by purchasing books, but by going to libraries and copying books. Um, so this is how, also where we see how uh, specialized knowledge that you know could be certainly about the classics, about technical subjects, about agriculture, but also about mathematics could um, um, could be exchanged. Uh, amongst literati and certainly in, in Nanjing he meets other people who are interested in the same field uh, he begins to have uh, uh, a reputation his his reputation is really uh, constructed you know from uh, his his native uh, prefecture to Nanjing and then from Nanjing to Beijing um, uh, so he he um, uh, he's a very prolific writer. Already in the uh, uh, 1670s, he has written um, um, at least about 10 mathematical treatises and some books on astronomy. Um, and um, eventually he gets invited to the capital um, 
because um, in, in, in relation to the, uh, the project of compiling the dynastic history of the Ming that uh, the Kangxi Emperor has uh, uh, launched, um, uh, dynastic histories in, in China always had chapters on uh, the calendar, and so he is asked to, um, uh, to work on these. Um, and, and so this, this is how he uh, makes a name also in the capital. Um, and so uh, if we look at Mei Wending from the point of view of what he knew and what he was interested in, uh, clearly the first, the, first, uh, he, the first knowledge he has was from uh, uh, Chinese uh, traditional works and it's gradually that he becomes interested in in western knowledge and uh, you know has uh, access to it and his um, uh, his position on this um, is is um, i would say on the one hand um, he thinks that uh, there is not much point in distinguishing between Chinese and Western, that mathematics is one East and West, and one should all um, uh, put it together in a synthetic way, choosing in each um, tradition what is most relevant. So that's, I think, the way he works on mathematics. Uh, however, when he comes to talking about mathematics and astronomy, um, uh, his discourse is, is slightly different and gradually he um, builds up the argument that there is not much that is new in what the uh, uh, Jesuits are bringing and that all Western knowledge originates in China. Um, and this idea um, is actually extremely influential and it, it's, it remains there in China until the 19th century, basically. Uh, so it, it's... Um, on the one hand, you could say it's denying the, uh, um, you know, the, the value of the Jesuits' contribution, but it is also providing a rationale to adopt this knowledge, uh, because if it's all Chinese in the first place, if one is just retrieving ancient knowledge that is lost, uh, there is no question that uh, studying all this and uh, uh, promoting it is is perfectly uh, a perfectly orthodox thing to do great thank you now after um, we meet Mei Wending what the next sections of the book show us is this massive or this large arc whereby on the one hand um, Kangxi is sort of showing off and using these lessons um, the knowledge that he gained with lessons with the Jesuits in order to assert his authority over distinguished scholar officials and then in the next section of the book turning around and reversing this dismissal of Chinese scholars knowledge of mathematics and sort of really changing the face of what um, what mathematics looks like at the court. So, after, so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit um, because I don't want to take up three hours of your time, although it's there is that much um, richness in the book and we could talk for that long. But let's move toward um, the, the next section of the book. Now, at this point, um, in, the late six, in the late 17th century, um, at this point, new actors start coming into the story and really challenging the preeminence of these Jesuits that we've been talking about. And you take us through um, the sort of, I think really wonderfully, a kind of typical study session or a typical lesson that Kangxi would have had with um, two French Jesuits in particular, um, Gerbillon and Bouvet, who were tutoring him in not just mathematics, but also um, materia medica and anatomy and so on and so forth. Now, one of the things that come, and, and there's a ton in there that we could talk about that I'll just um, gesture at for listeners. It's an extraordinarily rich section of the book. Now, one of the things um, that you mention here that you kind of underline for us is the role of language um, as one of the um, larger themes of this chapter of the history of science um, globally, really. The language of science and, sci and Kangxi scientific education plays a really important role um, in this central part of the book. 
Now, you, you bring us to, in chapter 8, this textbook, um, the, this new elements of geometry, which is actually first translated from French into Manchu, and then Manchu into Chinese. And I think one of the things that this does for listeners um, is to really sort of bring out the importance of Manchu for the history of science. Can you talk a little bit to, um, to that issue? Um, how important um, is understanding the role, or how important is Manchu language here to the way the story unfolds? Um, I, I think, yes, there's the particular case of, of geometry is, is uh, you know, is a, a very good um, uh, summary of uh, what uh, the Kangxi Emperor sought to achieve because what we are saying here is that uh, geometry is no longer coming from Latin into Chinese, it's coming from the Manchus. Imperial geometry comes from, from the Manchu, from Manchu into Chinese, um, which, uh, of course, is a, um, uh, it's, is crucial because um, what is happening at that time, Kongxi is having all the Chinese classics Uh, in the Manchu language. Uh, and um, uh, so I think he used the sciences and, and mathematics in particular as um, a kind of counterexample. Uh, in, in a sense, he was trying to make the, uh, uh, the balance a bit more even and trying to display the fact that uh, Manchu the language Manchu could also be the vehicle of something that that Chinese needed and did not have available to them, or unless um, the, the the Qing gave it to them. So I think this is uh, quite an important. Um, uh, it, it's quite an important reason for him to um, have his uh, mathematics lessons in Manchu at a time when it seems that uh, he was. Uh, perfectly uh, comfortable and, and fluent in Chinese. Um. Thank you. Now, the sort of as you take us through this part of the book, um, you take us through cases that I'll just mention um, without going into detail, um, a case in which um, you show us lecture notes by one of his tutors, in fact, the most prolific Jesuit mathematician at court, um, and the sort of the, the ways that those lecture notes get adapted into a textbook. You take us back to Mei Wending, um, and then we sort of get to this point in the 1700s where Kangxi is ending, or he's sort of looking toward the end of his reign, the issue of his succession is looming, and he begins to distance himself from the Jesuits he'd be working, he's been working with, and really change direction and start um, focusing more on Chinese scholars and bannermen as his imperial mathematicians. Can you speak a little bit to that? Why does he begin distancing himself um, from uh, the Jesuits and from his tutors, and, and what happens to push him in this different direction? Um, well, one one uh, important uh, reason for that was uh, what is seen from Europe as an episode in the um, rights controversy. That is when a, a papal legate comes to the Beijing court and, and basically tells the emperor that uh, Chinese Christians are not allowed to do uh, ancestor worship. Uh, like, you know, some imagine a Buddhist monk coming to Louis Fourteenth and telling him that some of his subjects uh, won't attend mass anymore. Um, if you Im try to imagine that, you realize how much uh, the imperial reaction was at that stage, um, but um, the um, uh, I think that the uh, the, the, the challenge to um, you know Confucian orthodoxy was such that um, no matter how he felt, because we were we don't really know how the emperor felt. Uh, he had, he, I have to say, he had a great talent for um, addressing his various subjects in such a way that each of them would feel, um, you know, sympathy or uh, whenever it was necessary. So uh, uh, we, we do not often have evidence that uh, the emperor really genuinely believed something, but in a sense, um, you know, this is not what um, the story is about. And, and uh, I think 
no no good politician uh, you know it is it's not what you what you want to to study but in any case um, the the uh, there is a, a perception that um, uh, missions can be a, a threat because they are spreading especially in, in Jiangnan so the uh, lower Yangtze uh, region uh, without uh, much uh, control and um, so this is one reason why uh, the emperor seems to distance himself from uh, the Jesuits. Uh, and um, But uh, it does not mean he stops using them. It means he then uh, turns to some Chinese scholars, beginning with uh, Mei Wending, um, and uh, starts looking for um, mathematical talent amongst them. Um, and and um, I think the there is one stake there that is important. It's that of uh, monopoly. Uh, Kongxi had so far retained a complete monopoly of on the Jesuits' uh, teachings, and um, the the, the uh, reversal of alliance results in the fact that he's now ready to share it. And of course, being the emperor, he's sharing it by turning himself into a teacher in the Confucian mode. Now, as, um, as we move into the conclusion of the book, before we, um, before we wrap up, there's just a couple of things that I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit. So as we move into these last two sections, and certainly the last one, we see Kang Shi creating an office of mathematics staffed by Chinese scholars and bannermen, and we see the major project that they're um, working on, which is the... Uh, compilation of this text that you began um, talking about, and this is a text that we, that you translate here as the essence of numbers and their principles. Now, most of the content of this massive treatise was derived from Jesuits' lecture notes, but that content was reworked within a structure of a unified, a different system of mathematics. Can you talk, because that this text is so important um, in the context of this book. Can you talk a little bit about this text and the ways that it um, was different from and reworked these notes that it was based on, at least in part? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the first uh, major point is that um, the lecture notes were separate, um, separate um, from separate textbooks. Sometimes they were cross-references, but they were not just one work, so there was no uh, claim as to the uh, overarching structure of mathematics uh, that can be drawn from uh, uh, these textbooks, whereas uh, the essence of numbers of, of and their principles does make uh, such a claim. And... Um, the um, uh, so that that's one aspect, and the other aspect is the uh, very detailed uh, rewriting uh, of, for example, um, the problems themselves, or uh, the even the rewriting of the um, uh, geometry uh, treaties that had been translated from uh, Manchu. Uh, so clearly, the text is turned into a. Uh, um, a text that is more, uh, I would say, up to uh, literary standards. Uh, and it also, uh, in many, this involves in many cases uh, uh, going towards a greater concision. Uh, some of the Jesuit lecture notes uh, give the impression that we have in the text every single step that the teacher has made to his student. Um, Whereas the um, uh, there is a, a uh, I would say a, a, a more um, um, the the, the uh, essence of numbers and their principles is closer to the uh, mathematical tradition, uh, perhaps in in uh, greater uh, concision, for example, for 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 each part, um, and. Um, then yes, there is a, uh, the, the, the overarching structure of mathematics is basically um, first uh, the assertion of the uh, foundations of mathematics as being uh, the same as their historical origins. So going back to um, uh, some uh, knowledge ascribed to high antiquity. Um, and... Um, then after that, we have elements of geometry and of calculations. 
And then the uh, second and by far the largest section of the treatise uh, will uh, be applying uh, this, the, these, what we have in these elements, and everything is then organized according to uh, uh, dimensions or first just calculation, but then uh, everything that has you know one dimension also uh, everything that is lines in geometry and uh, linear equations, and then after lines you have areas, and then you have solids. So the um, uh, something that is uh, basically uh, a classification that has to do with that of geometrical objects is used to um, structure mathematics at large. Great. Now, as we come to a close here, I just also want to kind of point out for listeners um, that there's a fascinating chapter um, on what you call methods and material culture in this treatise that looks at the importance of the material culture of mathematical problems found in the treatise, which also reminds us again of the importance of materials and objects. I mean, things like inks, not just inkstones and diamonds, but also weighing scales that I think is... um, fruit for uh, much uh, thought and much sort of thoughtful reflection. And I think that was really, really helpful, at least for me, to read about that chapter. Now, as the book closes, um, you bring us into the end of the story, or at least the end of this story, with um, the way things change with the death of Kang Shi. And then in the conclusion, um, you also leave us with, I think, some really helpful uh, thoughts about the possible broader implications of this study for the field of history of science um, and in terms of its comparative and also global um, aspects. So as we close, or before I ask you um, <laughs> the my super closing questions, is there anything that you'd like to sort of mention about these broader implications? For you, thinking about this work, um, we've talked about the importance of your kind of destabilizing these dichotomies of Europe and China. We've talked about the importance of thinking about circulation as a way of producing knowledge, not just as sort of moving already um, solid, you know, unchanging knowledge around. What other implications um, does this study have for their broader understanding of history of science, especially in a global context and per- perhaps especially in the early modern world? Um, yes, um, the... Huh. I know, it's a very small question, right? It's a very small question, perhaps. <laughs> Could be just as <laughs> and suggest that you know the readers might might find out, but um, I, I I think perhaps um, um, what I have um, you know uh, tried to to uh, what I've tried to do in in closing is is uh, uh, partly to say well you know this is just one little story. <laughs> In, in in you know the what there is to say of on, on the history of science um, not the global history of science but the uh, history of science uh, looked and you know connected i would say in different parts of the world and um, uh, you know what um, also also why I, I tried to come back to uh, what my story can mean in chinese context at the time uh, because you know, focusing as I do very much on um, an emperor who had his own agenda, one also has to understand how things could work within, uh, uh, you know, uh, doing with the fact that he had to uh, convince uh, uh, scholars who were of, you know, of uh, Chinese culture. Um, so that's, I think, two, um, uh, uh, two points I'm, I'm trying to make. And, um, uh, I, I think in, in, in the last respect, I think this is where I tried to, um, uh, take literally the, um, uh, the reference that the book title makes to, uh, Anderson's tale. Try to think of, uh, what kind of cloth where, um, you know, uh, the emperor's new mathematics made of, um, and um, so, you know, this is where I have tried also to, to um, say what else can we say than the traditional story, which is not only that Western mathematics arrive in China, 
but the other side of the story, which is, uh, oh, what a pity that the Chinese did not make, you know, full uh, profit of it. They could have done so much better. Um, and uh, so, you know, my, my alternative is to say, well, uh, you know, we, we uh, how can we account for what happened uh, rather than trying to um, try to understand um, why something else did not happen? So I, I, I hope that by the end of the book, I have um, brought the reader to to agree with me that um, there was no such thing as, you know, science coming somewhere and establishing itself. Um, uh, And that we have, in fact, uh, not one, but perhaps several reconstructions of uh, mathematical knowledge um, in 18th century China. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I know it's a very rich book, and we didn't have time to get to probably even half, um, if that, of the contributions that the book is making. Is there anything else about the book that we didn't cover, but that you'd like to point out for listeners, especially those who may not yet have had the opportunity to read the book? Um, yes, perhaps there's just one one point I would like to to make. I think I, I um, you know, what mathematical subjects I would deal with. So, as I said at the beginning of this uh, discussion, I said I I, I, I chose um, problems that I found before in in the Chinese tradition, but I also made the. Tr- choice to um, um, deal with uh, mathematics that I believe everyone has learned at high school. Um, but it, from me, this is a, also a plea, uh, I think, addressed to historians to say, don't leave uh, the history of science to, you know, people who have studied science. It's uh, part of, um, uh, you know, part of um, uh, culture in in, um, human history and it should really be integrated more uh, thoroughly into uh, historical narratives. And now that the book is out, um, and again, congratulations uh, on the book, what are you working on now? What's your next project or what's inspiring you at the moment? Um, Well, I suppose what what is inspiring me is still related to circulation. Uh, In the last couple of years, I have been involved in um, coordinating a collective project. It's called Individual Itineraries and the Circulation of Scientific and Technical Knowledge in Late Imperial China. And uh, we are looking on on various case studies uh, on how um, uh, individuals' geographical mobility did or did not contribute to um, the circulation of knowledge. Uh, We start, of course, from the uh, uh, pattern of circulation of Chinese elites. So as I uh, mentioned for Mei Wending, you know, from your native town to uh, the uh, uh, district prefecture, then to the provincial capital, then to um, the empire's capital, and then if you succeed to a part of the empire that you've never been to before. Um, But also if you fail, of course, you then go home and you also cause knowledge to circulate. So we are looking at um, uh, some uh, scholar officials, uh, but also at, um, for example, the monk architect. We are looking at uh, medical practitioners. We're looking at um, various individuals related to the imperial court. We're also looking at um, uh, foreigners who circulated in China in order to um, uh, work towards, um, you know, how far can we go in producing a cartography of knowledge? And and so this... Uh, involves not only, um, uh, you know, writing articles of books, but also involves um, collecting information in a database and um, trying to um, uh, work with uh, maps as well to, to 
can one really map knowledge literally? You know, okay, is it possible to survey either a particular field or a particular uh, area of China or, or just follow up a, a person's um, itinerary and, and see how the knowledge is, um, again, constructed and uh, circulated as this person moves um, around the empire? Great. Well, best of luck with that project, and thank you again for being with us today. Um, Thanks very much. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much, and join us next time.